Welcome back to another wonderful episode of Success Innovation. Today I am pleased to bring a wonderful individual who is in the South Bay area in San Francisco. Today's episode is called 30 Years Later, Nothing Has Changed. In this episode, we dive into this individual's life and get to understand better how he managed to become a real successful individual. Today's episode is with Oscar Garcia. He is the founder of Aspira Consulting. So if you have any questions, you're more than welcome to reach out to him. He does a lot of great webinars and seminars that pertain to LinkedIn. So let's get started with this great interview with Oscar Garcia from Aspira Consulting. Thank you. Welcome back to another wonderful episode of Success Innovation. Thank you so much to the audience, to the loyal listeners and viewers. This is a video as well as an audio version of the podcast for Success Innovation. Today, today I have the great honor and privilege of interviewing Oscar Garcia. Oscar Garcia is the owner and founder of Aspira Consulting Incorporated. He obtained a bachelor's in Chicano studies from UC Berkeley. He has been very active in the Latino community as a true advocate of advancement. He was the host of the Silicon Valley show, business show. He has been extremely involved. He was the president and CEO in his local chamber of commerce. Through his Aspira Consulting Incorporated, he has been able to support others in their time of need by providing valuable advice. Oscar, welcome. Welcome to the show of Success Innovation. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, Lazaro. Thank you so much for uh, having me and also for creating this platform, not only for professionals such as myself to share more about the story, but it's really the impact that uh, you are having with your many viewers and listeners. So thank you. Thank you. Yes. And, uh, you know, as uh, we were kind of talking earlier, you're a uh, first generation and from what i've seen in your linkedin you're you know very very motivated to support the first generation individuals the new immigrants coming in and trying to advance themselves and to escalate uh before we get into all of that can you kind of talk about your early stages early beginnings where you were born where you're from where you kind of grew up and where does this dedication and persistence comes from to help the first generation immigrant here? So I was born in uh, Riverside, California. Uh, and at the time my parents were migrant workers. They actually uh, were working in the uh, uh, Coachella Valley, uh, Palm Springs area. And uh, Riverside General Hospital was the closest hospital. So I was born there. And then a month after I was born, uh, we moved back to Zacatecas, uh, me uh, Mexico, where my parents were from. I lived there until the age of uh, five when uh, for, you know, like most immigrants for uh, economic reasons, we came back to California. The plan uh, for my parents was to uh, save money, be here for maybe about a year and then move back to Zacatecas. Well, 46 years later, I'm still here. And unfortunately, you know, my parents passed away, but um, 
uh, when we came back, uh, we ended up actually moving to the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because uh, here in Silicon Valley, it is so transient. And so to think that I have been living literally in the same town of Mountain View for 46 years is, I'm like a rare breed now. <laughs> Well, when you say very transient, you mean that people are coming in and moving out and they're very nomadic, essentially, uh, to put it in, in blunt words. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, because um, see what, what's happened here with the economy is, you know, back in the day when, uh, when I was a kid, I would hear of companies like, you still do have Hewlett Packard or, you know, some of these other uh, Fairchild Semiconductor, the true semiconductor companies that, uh, started the the Silicon Valley here, and people would work at these companies for until they retired thirty you know plus years. Well, as you and I know, technology has changed and very rapidly, and we really have moved more towards what we hear that gig economy or contractor, and so um, companies, uh, tech companies today in, in Silicon Valley will, will bring employees or employees will stick around for maybe two, three years, maybe five at the most, and then they move on to another opportunity or the company lays them off because the project is no longer, you know, a valid project. So that's what I mean in terms of transient. Oh, I see. Okay. Very interesting. Yes. And you probably obviously see that a lot more because you're up in the Silicon Valley area. So that's very oh, yeah. obvious and very evident to you. So you grew up, uh, you grew up in Zacatecas until you mentioned the age of five. So at the age of five, uh, what's the fondest memory that you have at Zacatecas? And then when you actually cross over, what was that transition like for you? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. So some of the 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 best memories that I have living in Zacatecas, my early childhood was my dad was a a, a butcher. He a carnicero. So he had his own uh, business and his own carniceria. And then my mom was also uh, an entrepreneur, a business owner. She sold chicharrones, um, you know, pollo, poultry, and, you know, just different things. I remember also she was um, uh, a, uh, what, what do you call it, uh, a, a, like a retail importer. Because I remember coming with her to the border towns, to Laredo uh, and some of the other um uh, border towns because my mom would take orders from people over in Zacatecas that wanted certain clothes right and so we would get on a bus and come to the border my mom would buy the the clothes whatever it is that they ordered uh and then we would go back and my mom would sell it obviously mark it up etc and so forth and so for me that memory of just always being around my parents and just being a, a free kid um because it was a small town that my parents mm -hmm. uh, uh, were from. And uh, I love that memory, you know, having that memory. kind of reminds me today, uh, at least here in the Silicon Valley area in San Jose, there's with the flea market, the San Jose Ferias right. flea market, okay. um, which, you know, you're probably familiar, very open market, right? And the produce section and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so when I go to the San Jose flea market here, it brings back those memories of their childhood. Wow. Just Running, uh, dry, uh, riding my little tricycle, and going to the carniceria where my dad was working, and then going over where my uh, to you know where my mother selling the chicharrones, and I'm playing around with the kids and like just carefree uh, uh, area. Wow. Um, okay, so for the audience um, and myself as well, 
uh, what year was was that? Uh, that was in... th that was uh, so I just turned fifty one. So uh, that was between sixty nine and uh, seventy five. Okay, so for the audience, if you go back in the history books, this is pre NAFTA. This is pre the free trade agreement. So his mom actually taking the bus and driving to the border was a reality at that point where, you know, a lot of products weren't really flowing from the United States down to the South in Mexico. So a lot of people wanted to get those American products. So there was those individuals that would go into the border towns, acquire some of that merchandise and then bring it back. But there was no free trade agreement where it was free flowing. So this is pre that era. This is the era of pre-internet where you didn't have the ability to just get online and order things and have them show up at your doorstep. Somebody had to actually go and physically get them. So that is the type of uh, experience that Oscar here has, the memory of going to the border town. And, uh, you know, coming back, how was that transition of, I'm assuming you were going into the, the U.S. school system at the age of six. How how did you not knowing English? How did that happen? So it was a shock okay. for me because um, I, I started my education here in the U.S. kindergarten, and um, I mean, like you know, like like most kindergarten kids, right? You don't want to leave your parents, and I remember crying when my mom dropped me off in kindergarten and so forth, uh, and and the thing is, though, from a language standpoint, I was, because I was young, I was able to learn English fairly quickly. By the second half of kindergarten, I was understanding, you know, English and I could start kind of speaking it and et cetera and so forth. The part that was the, the, the most challenging for me was the cultural aspect of it, where, again, my parents were very Mexicanos. I mean, my parents, uh, when they passed away, they didn't know how to speak English. And because the minute I learned how to speak English in kindergarten, I became their translator until they mm. passed away. And, 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 and they were also very traditional Mexican. Okay, my dad had the belief uh, that, hey, I, you are Mexican and you will speak Spanish. You're not going to be like one of those kids that he would say, tienen el nopal en la frente, and, you know, they can't speak Spanish. I mean, obviously, you know, I have different opinions about that and, and so forth, but I'm just telling you about my dad's attitude. Right, yeah. And so, to put it one way, I guess very direct, in, in my home, we were very Mexican. Mm -hmm. But then I stepped out of the front door of my house into white America, and there was this culture clash. And with that culture clash also came because of the dominant society, white society versus Latinos. And, and you know the history with that, I felt inferior. And it took me a long time for me to kind of overcome that and believe in myself, feel secure in my upbringing, you know, my cultura and those type of things. Okay, so we fast forward a little bit to high school. Um, and obviously you have a degree in Chicano studies, but I want to ask for me and for the audience, was pursuing a college education always instilled in you by your parents or was that something that kind of grew out of somebody else, some other mentor? How did that come about? Um, it came 
from it, it didn't come from my parents and let me let me elaborate on that my parents were uh my dad never graduated went past first grade mm-hmm. my mom middle school and and as you know the education system in mexico and just other countries is different from the education system here so we arrive here they don't speak the language they're not educated and they also are not familiar with the education system here what one of the blessings that my parents bestowed on me was to have the confidence and the faith that mijo if you think this is good for you for your future go for it because there's the other also type of parents that are the helicopter parents that are constantly hovering over you telling you what you need to do and in some cases they don't even know what the heck needs to be done and so i'm not saying one necessarily is better than the other i'm just blessed that my parents gave me the freedom to, and and had that confidence in me that hey you think this class is going to help you down the road go for it now in the big picture of things my parents are like most parents mijo i want you to be a doctor i want you to be a lawyer right that's what many parents mm-hmm. have that that, that feeling yeah. so, yeah. so that's yeah. so they, they they had me but it's not like they said we want you to go to berkeley or we want you to go here and get a four year degree in chicano studies or whatever they they didn't know that okay okay and and just to add a little bit to what oscar is saying you know a lot of immigrant parents and you did mention it uh, they come with the mindset of or at least they came with the mindset of okay we're going to go work for a little bit make some money and go back to our homeland and put a, a little business, un negocito, una tiendita, and keep on growing that because we want to go back home, be back with our families, with our extended families, and we're just coming here to get you know some money, financial uh, independence, essentially, and bring it back to our country. Now, with the new generations, that is totally different, but this, at least with Oscar, and I think myself was one of the last generations that it actually happened with, this is pre-1995, when the NAFTA agreement kind of happened and then truncated all of that. But um, so that being said, uh, Oscar, you pursued a Chicano studies degree and you went to UC Berkeley. You know, you mentioned doctor, you mentioned engineer, you mentioned lawyer. Why did you pursue Chicano studies? <laughs> yeah. So um, I mean, I, not that it's bad. It just no, no, it's, no, no, it's, no, 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 no. Um, so the reason why I major in Chicano studies is I always have, and I still do have a love for history. Right. I to this day I would rather watch a some kind of a documentary, you you know, National Geographic, or you know, I love that show PBS Frontline. Yeah. Those type of uh, of, of shows really captured my attention versus other uh, type of TV uh, shows. So I've always loved history. And um, when I was in Berkeley, uh, my first two years, you know, you're taking your electives. And I remember seeing a Chicano Studies, Introduction to Chicano Studies uh, History course. I'm like, yeah, I love history. Let me take it. This Chicano Studies, no, we'll see. And the professor was super dynamic. Um, the topic, again, I loved it. And he also, the things that, that I was learning in that class, like, for example, part of, it was U.S. history, okay, from the time when Cortez lands in, you know, in the Americas and then to the present. And I remember during studying, talking about World War II and about the Zoot Suit riots. And I'm like, 
what? Zoot Suit yeah. Riots? How come I didn't learn this stuff when I was in US history in high school? Right. Like we didn't even touch on that. And this discrimination, what's going on, and, and, and other examples, that's like Chavez, you know, and, and all these things about, you know, Chicano history and, the, you know, our struggles. And it just fascinated me even more. And then I took it to the next stage where I'm like, you know what? I don't care to be an engineer. I don't care to be an accountant where I have to have specific training or take specific courses. The truth is, it, as long as you have a, a college degree, it doesn't necessarily matter what that degree is in. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to major in something that I love, going to class instead of being a, a, a subject matter, shoved down my throat because my engineer, engineering parents want me to be an engineer like them. Okay. Okay. Now that you mentioned the engineering parents, how did you break the news or how did you tell your parents hey you know i'm gonna go study chicano studies and what did they say and obviously you mentioned that they're the type of parent or they were the type of parent that said okay if you if you feel that it'll help you in the future for you go ahead and follow so was that something that they said okay yeah go ahead study chicano studies or whatever what advice would you share with the students that are not necessarily geared for engineering, a lawyer, a doctor, but their parents are those type of helicopter parents that say that you, and we want you to study this. I always tell students, don't follow the money, follow your passion, whatever that is. So why did you, how did you deal with that at that, at that young age? Yeah. So, um, my, my parents did, um, but my parents were of the mindset because again, in, in Mexico, typically you pursue an education higher education that is going to take you to a specific job for ex even to this day i have a niece who is studying she's in a vocational training to be an airline stewardess mm -hmm. like i had no like here i had no idea that there's an air that there are even an airline stewardess courses that you can take to but apparently in mexico there is so my parents were of that mindset that hey what you're going to study that's what you're going to end up working so when I told them about Chicano studies and I was going to major, the question I asked was like, so what are you going to do with that degree? <laughs> right? right? What are you going yeah. to do? Like, cause they okay, very linear, you know, career path. And when I explained to them, as I shared with you that, Hey, you know what? I'm not going to be an engineer or this and that. It really doesn't matter as long as you have, they were, they were like, okay, that kind of makes sense. That's fine. That's not, a, that's not a problem. You know, go for it. Now, your other second part of the question, what is my advice to um, students that maybe have those parents that are putting pressure on them to major in a particular degree? I'm going to tell you to those students, and because I tell them this because part of my training that I do, career training that I do is, folks, listen, first of all, if your parents are paying for your education, then you know what? Suck it up, okay? Because they're paying for your education. All right. There you go. If you don't, or don't agree with with what they're telling you, then stop taking their money and pay for your own damn education. Okay. All right. Period. Because they have control over that. Now, next. Okay. At long term, just like you said, you go pursue an area that you are happy or you have that drive. And the other thing too, take what I referred to as the buffet approach to your career. Think about when we walk into a restaurant and, and it's a buffet line. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm a picky eater. And so, like, I first walk around the buffet kind of checking out to see what's, you know, is, is there something that I actually will eat because I don't want to go hungry. And so, yeah, oh, you know what? Yes, I'll eat that. I like that. Okay, that looks – and then the next thing is do what our parents tell us to do when it comes to eating, and that is don't say you don't like something until you try it. So maybe try something. Try a job, a career, an industry, and you know what? If you don't like it, then go find something else. At least you learn what you don't like, or maybe you do like that particular area and you pursue it. And, and especially when you're young, you can screw up as much as you want with your career and you can still get yourself back up. I mean, hell, I just turned 51, man. If tomorrow I don't wanna do my business anymore, screw it, I will do something else. What the heck? Right, right, for sure, for sure, for sure. Uh, let me go back to your college years. Um, did you did you transfer directly from high school to UC Berkeley? I, I did straight you to did. Berkeley. Okay, okay, okay. I've heard a lot of students say that getting into UC Berkeley is extremely hard nowadays. That you need an, an extreme SAT score, a really good GPA, and as you know, there's a lot of um, honors classes and there's a lot of AP courses so kids can come out with a 4.5 or 5.0 GPA which yeah. in, in my time it was something that didn't happen in your time I don't know if that was even even a thing so what would you say to the students that are trying to get into a four-year degree uh, university and they don't have the financial solvency to go ahead and do it and they're thinking oh my god you know how am i going to put all this debt on myself so that when i actually get out of college i need to pay it back yeah it's you, you know what looking back i was fortunate that mm -hmm. when i graduated from cal i think about i had about twelve thousand dollars in student loans mm -hmm. um then you know it was on, and it was on a, on a ten, ten, i was on a 10-year payback plan which you do the math that's nothing Okay, I mean, I'll blow that. Well, not right now because we're in shelter in place, but before on a Friday night, you know, having some drinks and a nice dinner and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, um, but no, so one, one advice is, is that before you say no to that school or, or that path, make sure that you have exhausted the, the financial um, opportunities that are out there whether it's talking to your, the financial aid at the school. And I will tell you this, because from experience from now having kids that have graduated, is, is that financial aid counselors um, will give you oftentimes kind of that short answer or something so that you can kind of, you know, either it helps you or if it's not going to help you, they're hoping that you're not going to keep coming back and like, you know, asking them some more and putting some more pressure. You've got to be relentless, man, and with those counselors. Be what I refer to in the career world, be professionally assertive. Now, if it does happen where, hey, you just can't get any more money or whatever from that school, look at some scholarships, okay? Look at some companies. There's some nonprofits out there in different industries. Here in Silicon Valley, I mean, most of the time we hear about STEM, 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 you know, education they'll find if you're going into that field. But there are some other nonprofits or other companies that will provide some financial assistance, even if you're not going to go into the STEM. So make sure you're exhausting that. The last thing advice that I would give you is 
if you've done all that and you're still, you know, like you're like, oh gosh, Oscar, like I'm still going to be taking on a lot of debt. Listen, folks, okay. Again, I'm I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. If I want to go to LA, I the, the fastest route of driving is Highway Five. But you know what? Sometimes Highway Five might be close at the Grapevine, especially in winter time, and I might have to go on Highway One, which is very curvy and it's going to take me a lot longer. But I'm going to get there. And so maybe you need to go to community college. There you go. Maybe you need to go to community college. Exactly. Great advice. Great advice. Uh, back in college, were, did you belong to any student organization that helped you? Or did you do all this studying on your own? Uh, an independent individual studying Chicano studies? How did that look like for you? So... Um, I was a, uh, uh, a member of a, um, a traditional Greek fraternity uh, at, at Berkeley, Sigma Phi Epsilon Sigma, uh, that did provide a lot of the, uh, the camaraderie, the friendship, uh, the support as well, and also the good times. <laughs> okay. I had a great time. Um, but also, the thing that, that I also learned, because when I went into Berkeley, I had, I had uh, in high school, I was like averaging like a a minus in English, and so I did really poorly on the SAT score, the English per, portion, and so I get into Berkeley my freshman year, and I'm they put me in this remedial English writing class, bonehead English, and they give you two chances to pass the, the that course, and if you don't pass it, they boot you out of Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So I was stressed because I wanted to pass it the first time. I did not want to go the second time, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember writing my, uh, my essays, my midterm, walking into the midterm. The professor had given the questions ahead of time, uh, five questions, and he was going to pick one question out of the five. I, my brain froze when I sat down for that midterm, and I, my butt stayed for 90 minutes sitting there because I didn't want to be obvious to the rest of the class, and I had just thrown in the towel, right? And I got an F, you know? And so those experiences got me out there finding a tutor, talking to my floor mates. I'm like, hey, dude, can you help me out with my paper? What do you recommend? Can you proofread it? In other words, I, I learned how to be coachable and go out there and seek help from other people. That's awesome. Yeah. You, you, he said a great piece of advice. You have to learn how to be coachable. Yeah, you know, that means to me, and, and because I went through the same thing, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer, but I had to, my SATs were not that great going from high school to a four-year university at UCSD. Uh, I also went to the remedial English course, but they, it's a quarter system on, at UCSD. So they gave us three quarters, so it's essentially a full year to go ahead and pass that English exam, the remedial exam. It's a writing writing class but the, you know the english language the way that that you know essays are graded is so weird for me i still don't really understand it so i i to be honest with everybody with oscar and, and everybody here i actually had to do it three times and honestly the third time is the charm and every you know the first time i was like oh, okay yeah i'm gonna go through this i'm gonna sit down i'm gonna pass it so i go through the motions Oh, I fell the first time. And exactly like Oscar, I'm like, oh, okay, this is not so easy. What do I need to do? So the second time around, 
I found an organization at UCSD called Oasis, uh, which is they give you free tutoring, free tutoring at the university level. And they help me with the writing. So I go in and I do the test again. But obviously something went wrong. I needed more practice. So I had to take it again. I'm like, okay, a third time going through the same class, going through the same effort. So I go back to Oasis and one of the mentors, the, the lead for that department told me, you know what, what you're doing is you're thinking in Spanish and writing it in English. Yeah. which doesn't really translate well. And, but in your mind, it makes perfect sense, yep. but you're telling a story. No, this is not the way you write a, an essay in the U.S. You have to write it all in English and you have to follow a structure. They showed me like this triangle trickle down so that you funnel it down and then you develop your body of the paragraphs yeah, and yeah, then yeah. you do the triangle back down to a conclusion and then expand it and kind of leave it open. So I still remember that diagram schematic of how to write the essay. <laughs> Not that I'm the best at writing essays, but you know, at least it helped me in the third time I was able to pass it. So yeah, I'm sorry yeah. that I, I bent it a little, but you know, it's, it's a fun, it's an interesting, <laughs> hard memory for me at UCSD. So I'm sorry there for Oscar for taking some time <laughs> off the interview, but thank you so much. So you, you were part of a, a fraternity at UC Berkeley, and, and then you, you obviously graduated, which is a, a wonderful achievement. Um, assuming your parents were very proud, they would go, they see you with your whole regalia, whatnot. So you're ready to go out into the world. And then what was the first job that you actually got with the Chicano Studies major? Yeah, so I graduated in 92 and there was a recession going on, not like things are right now, but the economy was bad. And I remember uh, the, my last semester at Berkeley, um, walking into the big giant poly ballroom at Cal and uh, at a job fair. And most of the jobs that were there, uh, companies that were there, were looking to hire uh, engineers. And um, the few that were looking to hire liberal arts majors were like life insurance companies and so forth. I was like, I don't want to do that, you know. So I had uh, started working that holiday season prior at a retail store. Back then it was in Portland Capwell, which is kind of similar to like a Macy's um, type of, um, of, a, of a store. And when I graduated from Cal, um, they invited me to be part of their management trainee program so that they take you through this program. Um, they train you so that you can be a department uh, store, man uh, not, not the store manager, but within a department uh, in a store. And uh, I was fortunate enough um, here in the, in the San Jose area, they had, it was the number seven store out of 84. So it was a really high sales volume store. And I was the, uh, my first job was, um, department manager for men's furnishings and i only lasted one holiday season because i was like hasta aquí man <laughs> i turned into a scrooge man i got sick and tired of hearing jingle bells you know for like two months straight you know <laughs> you know yeah so that was my first job out of college okay fantastic and then you you so you kind of went into the business sales sector of the market uh and, and then what was the most valuable skill that you kind of attained from that 
that has allowed you to progress and to grow and it allowed you to jump to the next thing that you were going to do? You know, it, it, it really is the building and nourishing relationships or more, more commonly as we hear it, networking. Right. Uh, not too long ago, I put out a video on, on LinkedIn, as you know, because we follow each other. I share a lot of content. And um, when I look at my career journey, I've have had positions where I had no industry experience. My competition was way more qualified than I was. Uh, um, I've, I've gone to, uh, I've worked in various industries uh, early on from the finance sector to tech sales, inside, outside sales, manufacturing, consulting, starting a nonprofit, the chamber CEO, LinkedIn, my own business. I've actually made 11 career transitions in my, in my life. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so when I look back at what is the one thing that really has helped me is building and nourishing those relationships because it's not what you know, but who you know, but it's also who knows you as well. Okay. And, um, I always want to be as much as possible top of mind when someone is talking about whatever my skill set is or whatever it is at that moment, or, you know, we hear a lot about branding, right? Mm -hmm. Not too long ago, about a year, year and a half ago, um, a good friend of mine was in Panama doing some trainings through the U S embassy. And they asked her, do you know anyone that does a LinkedIn training? And I was top of mind. So she, she threw my name out and hence why I ended up going to Panama twice to do trainings out there. Mm -hmm. So networking, yeah. building and nourishing relationships. Yeah. And for the audience, uh, be it a young professional, be it a young student, be it an older individual, whoever you are watching or listening to this, you know, Oscar mentioned some key points there. He mentioned networking. He mentioned, um, actually, he also mentioned uh, being able to know not what you know, it's who you know, but also who knows you. Being on top of somebody's mind, being that person that's always uh, keeping on top of the relationship. It's not just knowing somebody. It's having that somebody know you, know who you are, your core values. I talked about core values in episode 10 uh, back in, in the early episodes of the podcast. So if you want to go back and listen to some of that, please do so. But yes, that is very key, very key points that Oscar actually brought forth. So then, Oscar, you you created a nonprofit in the in an organization. What was that, and how did you venture into creating it? How long did it take? And more than that, why did you decide to create a nonprofit? Sure. So you know the 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 goal wasn't to to start a nonprofit. Um, what happened was uh, my ex mother in law at the time was on the school board of our local school district here and my kids at the time that she was on the school board they were in private school and my mother-in-law kept telling us hey you guys should come to school board meetings because they're looking at we're looking at closing down a school and just the way things are happening and and the latino community latino parents are being disenfranchised and at the time uh they were actually they had two schools and they were going to pick one of those two um one school had i think it was about almost 90% Latino students. The other was over 60%. So really high Latino students in there. And the parents, many of them didn't speak English. 
just very similar to a situation like my parents, okay? And so I remember going to a school board meeting, not wanting to be there because my kids were little. I'm like, why in the heck? You know, I'm working professional like everyone else. You're busy and you're tired at the end of the, the work day to go to a school board meeting. That's the last thing you want to do. And your kids aren't even in that school, right? So what's significant? But I remember being a fly on the wall and in between one of the breaks uh, that the school board had, there were about five Spanish-speaking uh, parents that, that walked out of the meeting thinking the meeting had ended and they wanted to speak, give their two cents. And it brought back memories of when I was a little kid and how I was the translator for my parents at parent-teacher conferences. Mm -hmm. The school district did not have any, uh, any translators because very small percentage of Latinos. Well, I put on my business hat and I'm like, okay, if your clientele needs have changed as a business, I'm going to adapt to be able to address the needs of my clients. So in this case, I have more Spanish speaking parents that need translation today as a business. I'm going to provide that service. Well, you and I know that school districts don't think that way. Okay. Mm -hmm. But as we say in Spanish, because I'm like, what the hell? 30 years later and nothing has changed. So together with family and friends, we, we started rallying parents to go to school board meetings and we started translating for parents so that they could advocate whether they wanted the school closed, whether they wanted it open. And then in that process of helping parents, we saw that there was a need for a nonprofit to serve as a bridge between not just the schools, but other uh, uh, local government agencies, other nonprofits, the business community, and the Latino community. And hence, we started uh, Mesa de la Comunidad. Mm, okay, okay. What was the most interesting experience that you obtained after you actually started that nonprofit organization that you never expected would happen? Um, one that, that comes to mind right now is how organizations, and in this case, it's, I'm talking about the, the school district and even some of the uh, other local organizations, um, um, public organizations, city, uh, 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 government organizations, how their effort in doing outreach, in this case, I'm talking about the Latino community, they feel that because they uh, send an email and no one responds to a meeting that they have, that they did their job in communicating. Mm -hmm. And again, as a business owner, if you are reaching out to an audience using a certain platform, right, to invite them to, like in my case, let's say recently, a webinar, buddy, like, you and I know it's common sense as a business owner that you can't just rely on just one medium to communicate your message. You got to right, spread it out. And, and so the thing that, that came to my mind was how certain organizations are just pushing paper status quo. They're not open to really being creative to being resourceful, to being effective in their outreach efforts. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really interesting. And you know, with the pandemic, and I have to bring this up because I have two small children and the school system, the school district, what they did is they, they weren't prepared. They're not prepared for this whole remote learning situation. 
for the audience. If you're listening to this, uh, today is the year 2020, early April. And, you know, the school system, the school districts have pushed uh, online learning for young students and even university levels. And they are still scrambling, trying to figure what to do. But as Oscar said, sometimes they send an email out and they expect everybody to hear it. Uh, some, some schools use text or voice message and they expect that that's enough. Some schools use uh, limited social media, be it Facebook or whatnot. So they have to adapt to being able to utilize all the platforms uh, you know, consistently throughout the whole communication process. Um, well, then, then how did you, after you became part of a host of the Silicon Valley business show, how, how did that happen? How, how did you transition <laughs> over to that? And, so, and yeah, I actually did that while I was still working uh, at the chamber. I had for a long time, one of my board members kept telling me, Oscar, um, um, the chamber should do, uh, have a TV show because we're fortunate in, uh, here in Mountain View where I live, we have a, um, a local TV station. And, um, and so, you know, it was a way for us uh, as a chamber to get our message out there. And I mean, like most people, I was afraid to be on the damn ca camera. I'm an introvert, okay? Like, hell no, all right? And uh, I remember being invited to a holiday party uh, at the TV station, and uh, I had these two producers of a show, uh, I think it was an entrepreneurship show, they came up to me and they said, hey, Oscar, um, you're very well connected in the community, obviously with the business community, would you be able to make some introductions to some potential companies that we can bring on to our show? Um, but we're also looking for a host uh, of the show. And that was kind of like, I heard my board members sort of, you know, talking you know, in, in my ear. And I'm like, this is your opportunity, Oscar. So I said to them, hey guys, so you need a host? Yes. I said, are you, does someone need to have experience? They're like, no, we can train him. I'm like, I'll do it then. But I've never been in front of a camera, never done anything like this. And they're like, don't worry about it. You know, it's pretty simple. We'll train you and so forth. So I did, uh, I had uh, my own TV show, uh, Silicon Valley Business, for about a year and a half. And um, it was a 30-minute show. And it was run on local TV. And I sucked. All right. When I look back at those, <laughs> I sucked, man. But here's the thing, though. I, I, I've always pushed myself out of my comfort zone. Right. And so, as you know, the more you do something, the more comfortable you're going to get. You're just right. going to get better uh, at it. So, yeah, that's what that, that show is about. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So, you know, you got some exposure out there. You got some practice. You got... You stepped out of your comfort zone. That's a great value added a piece of advice for the audience. Always try to step out of your comfort zone so you can learn new skills. When you feel uncomfortable, that's when you're actually growing and learning, when you actually are acquiring valuable skills. That's incredible. What was the best guest or who was the best company that you were actually able to talk to or interview or bring into your show during that year and a half? Yeah, you know, I tell you, it, the, the, there's one, there was many, but uh, one in particular that I, that I was very uh, appreciative uh, that they attended was um, one of my uh, former 
bosses and CEOs uh, of a, uh, several successful startups here in Silicon Valley. Uh, in fact, uh, the last company, the last tech company uh, that I have worked uh, at was uh, his company. We were acquired by uh, Seagate Technology mm -hmm. and uh, Latino CEO, I, to this day, we still stay in touch. I respect him tremendously. Great, hard guy, gives a lot, supports a lot of other entrepreneurs and just the community as a whole. And so he was onto another startup when I reached out to him and invited him to be a guest on my uh, TV show, him and his other co-founder. And, it was, and it, was, it was humbling. It was gratifying. It was um, just a, a special moment for me to have them as a guest because he gave me the opportunity to go work at his company. He believed in me and it was kind of a, a, my way to also in a small way to pay back um, this time around. That's pretty cool. Amazing. That, thank you for sharing that with me. Uh, then you decided to go ahead and found and become the CEO of what you call Aspira Consulting Incorporated. When did that happen? And why did you decide to after being in the corporate world, working a nine to five, having your own nonprofit organization, your own show, working at Seagate and other corporations. Why did you decide to become essentially your own boss? And when did you found uh, Aspira Consulting Incorporated? Yeah. So when I was working as the head of the chamber, um, I had done that um, for about almost seven years when I decided that, um, you know, it's time for me to transition. I actually uh, started working at the chamber in uh, the beginning of 2009, right when the Great Recession happened. And we went through some really tough uh, economic times uh, at the chamber uh, to get things turned back around. And eventually we did, and we were growing uh, again the chamber. And one of the things that I learned I've learned about myself is that I thrive in change. I love being creative, that creative problem solver. And I felt that I had at the chamber had kind of done, been there and done that. And I actually gave my board a seven month notice that I was going to be leaving, which is unheard of. Typically, maybe in my role, maybe three months. But um, I started reaching out to my network, doing informational interviews and, um, when I left at the end of September of 2015, I didn't have anything lined up. Two months later, LinkedIn reached out to me and said, hey, we got this rec approved, you know, for, for you to help us with small businesses uh, on this project we're working on, would you be interested? I'm like, sure, let's go ahead and do it, you know, and it was a one-year consulting contract gig. It turns out that it changed into doing some community relations work. But during that year that I was at LinkedIn, uh, I started thinking more and more about what it is that I, what's my next move really going to be? Cause I'm only going to be here at LinkedIn for one year. And I actually launched a speed, uh, uh, consulting first doing the consulting work. Cause I, again, I'd like that variety, right? Short-term projects, problem solver, et cetera. And, um, and then the tail end of LinkedIn, I had a good friend of mine now who is a librarian invite me to do uh, a LinkedIn training one-on-one for, uh, at the library. Audience loved it. She loved it. I loved it. And that was the start of me to also doing uh, career development training. Mm. And, uh, and so I didn't start my business because I said, like, this is what I want to do. No, what I did is I jumped off the cliff and I just started 
kind of navigating. If you've ever seen those skydivers, uh, the, the, not, they're not really the skydivers. I forget what they're called, but the, 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 the folks that drop off the cliffs and, you know, they have those wings, you know, it's, okay. And then eventually, that's kind of like how I was. Like, I didn't, I didn't necessarily have some wings, but I guess I did. And I was sort of kind of navigating, you know, through uncharted water and uh, kind of scary because, again, I didn't have anything lined up. But one of the things that I've learned from my parents is to be resourceful, to go out there, as we say in Spanish, you know, metal, uh, echale ganas, and to be resilient. And so that's what helped me go out there and uh, eventually launch uh, Aspida Consulting. So why the name? To me, your name means Aspida. In Spanish, it means to aspire in English and to hope that for something greater, to hope to achieve something in your life. That's what it means to me. Is that what you are trying to yes. transmit to the individual? Absolutely. One of the things that I think is critical and is uh, on a personal level that you tie your personal values to the values of the organization. Um, and uh, for me, three main things that I'd love to do. I love helping other people dream bigger. I love inspiring them and I love serving them. Next, as it relates to your message and what is in it for other people, for your clients or, or prospects, we are all naturally selfish. You don't give a rip about my personal values. You want to know what's in it for you. So therefore, my why is I empower you so opportunities come to you, which ties into what you just mentioned, aspire, right? Like never settle, like always go out there. But it's not just this nothing wrong with Tony Robbins, okay, or these motivational speakers, okay, but it's like, it's good to have aspirations, but dude, at the end of the day, like, if I don't know how to cook, what good does it do for me to be hungry? Like, like if I don't know how to get to that goal, I need someone to like help me. And that's where I come in through my training to teach you and empower you truly so that opportunities come to you. That's where the name comes from. Fantastic. Um, when you first started back in 2015, I think that's, that's when you started and when you actually went off and you had no W2, you were not longer a paid individual with a paycheck and you're now flying solo, essentially jumping off a cliff or off a structure, hoping not to clip one of those pine cones where it rolls you over, right? Or a rock as you're diving down x number of miles per hour how did you feel what was the biggest obstacle that you encountered and how did you manage to navigate through those weird un you know uncharted territories yeah one of the biggest obstacles uh that i've had to overcome is in believing in myself and what I have to offer, you know, for, for minorities, we sometimes associate uh, that with imposter syndrome. Um, you know, like, who am I? A Chicano studies major? Berkeley, my, 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 I, as I told you, my parents, elementary school education, um, 11 career transitions, that sounds kind of wishy-washy. If you ask me, Oscar, what, you can't hold the job? You know, like all these negative sort of thoughts. And 
what I realized though, that we all go through crap. Crap stinks, but it's also fertilizer. How we react to the crap in our life is our choice. And so all these supposedly negative situations that I've gone through, I realized how to identify the fertilizer because today, as an example, I teach my peers who back when I was in my twenties and thirties, weren't giving me that job opportunity because I appeared on a resume that I couldn't hold a job. Today I'm teaching them how to transition careers because their ass just got laid off after 20 years at a company. I see. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with me. And that is a key point. That is a key point. You always have to be adaptable. You always have to be really flexible and you have to be able to think quickly on your feet and be able, I, I keep on going back to this networking and, you know, keeping those relationships uh, well nourished because you never know when you're going to need somebody. And if you meet somebody who's a janitor right now, they might be your future boss if you're not careful. So you better treat them with the same respect that you treat the CEO of whatever company you're working for. That's a, that's a great piece of advice there, Oscar. What's been, what, what has been, you know, obviously you've had so many transitions in job roles and in every one of them, you learn certain skills. What has been like the top three skills that you believe have helped, have helped you? succeed in life and in the uh, Spira Consulting Incorporated business that you started? Yeah, so one, like I mentioned, the, the building and nourishing relationships. The uh, other uh, skill that I've learned is resiliency and realizing that, um, that in, the, in, in the real world, especially in the business world, an F, unlike in school, F is like, oh my gosh, right? Like, no way, you know, don't, don't get an F, you're dumb, dude, like, what's the matter? Whereas in F, failure in business is a learning lesson. And it's really in life, a learning lesson. I have made many mistakes. Some of them were, in fact, the majority were my fault that I contributed to them. And learn, I've learned from, from those mistakes, okay? Um, and so, the, so knowing that, you look back, you get, you have a setback. Okay. What happened? Why did this happen? What can I learn? Is there something that I can salvage still from this, you know, opportunity or this supposed failure and then be able to move on. The other, the third thing uh, that I've learned is how to convey or tell my story in a way that it is impactful because when I, I'm, and I'm talking about my business story here. Okay. Because what, 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 what happens is too, that I've seen is someone can be, have a beautiful story, very touching story or, you know, impactful story, but the way you tell it, you can either come across very boring, very dull. It's the wrong, you know, your wrong messaging, uh, or, um, you just, you're just not able to connect with people. And see, I used to be, because being a natural introvert, right? I used to want to connect with people's mind first, intellectually. And one of the things that I've learned by telling my story is you need to connect with the person's heart first, then their mind. Because when you connect with their heart, you gain that credibility, that trust, and you make a friend for a lifetime. 
Right, correct. No, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Thank you for sharing that with me, Oscar. Um, what, what are the next steps for Oscar? You obviously have a speed of consulting incorporated. What do you, what do you hope that you can achieve? Uh, how much further do you see a speed of consulting going? You mentioned earlier in this conversation that maybe, you know, if, if you decided to not do your business anymore, you focus on something else. So maybe uh, kind of share with me how, what, what your long-term vision is at this point. So I, um, I continue to really, really love what it is that I'm doing, the work, the impact that Aspida Consulting is having. Um, recently, I've been very fortunate to have my daughter uh, work with, um, uh, with me. And, you know, that as, being as a parent, and I, I know you can relate to this, I mean, to, to have your, your kids work uh, with you and share in that same vision and help you, it's, um, it's, 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 it's special. It's, it really is special. Um, growth wise, um, I, I'm looking to hopefully once we, you know, the shelter in place and things, you know, kind of open up and so forth to be able to do more work internationally, uh, some trainings, uh, internationally. I had started to do that last year and now we're not, but the other area too, though, that, um, it, that, that has, uh, that I've changed in this last four weeks is the online training platform. Okay, um, expanding the different online training services, courses that I offer uh, is also an area that I'm working on very actively right now. And then the last thing is uh, I'm actually going to be writing a, a book. And uh, yeah, and I'll tell you, for me personally, the reason why I'm writing a book is because I just want to put down, there's so many stories that I have in my mind. There's so many things that I share, even on LinkedIn on some of my posts as stories. I have a lot of stories and I want to put those down on paper. I'm not writing a book because I want to be a published author, uh, author. Like I don't give a rip about being a published author. What I want to do is I want to write on your heart. Mm, I see. Awesome. And that's why I want to write a book. Okay, fantastic. That leads me to my next question. You know, good leaders always create good leaders. Do you have an individual you look up to, uh, somebody that's your mentor, somebody that, that you aspire or look up to and, and learn from? Uh, because obviously you're a good leader. So I just want to know where you got that from or who you kind of emulated initially and then have molded yourself into who you are. Sure. Well, I've, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, both my parents passed away. Uh, my dad about five years ago, my mom four years ago. And um, interesting for me on a personal level, how the older I get, the wiser my parents get. Because I reflect back on the things they said, the things they did. Uh, and oftentimes it was more, it, it, the life lessons that I've learned today or that I've embraced, you know, uh, is more because of what I saw my parents doing. Not because my parents, again, were the typical blue collar parents that they didn't sit down at dinner and be like, mijo, mira, let me tell you about, you know, this lesson. And let me tell you what I learned today as I was washing, you know, a big giant pot, because uh, my dad was a dishwasher here, you know, no. But it was things that, that I learned from both my mom and my dad that have helped me 
today in my life lessons of, like I mentioned, that resiliency, you know, moving forward, adjusting, pivoting, et cetera, and so forth. That on a personal level, my parents uh, are my heroes, okay? The other one, you know, in terms of like, just more general speaking, I love um, uh, John Maxwell. He okay. is by far my favorite uh, leadership author. I've read many of his books. Uh, I'm recently, re recently right now listening to one of his audio books on uh, how to be more of a people person and so forth. It's so, for me, uh, that, that's also, uh, uh, he's also very inspiring for me on a general level. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Uh, if you if you can choose or want to share with us, what do you think your superpower to be, or which superpower would you select and why? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, so my I would say my superpower is. Um, aspiration being to always aspire. I don't settle. I don't, but it, I, as I said, I keep coming back I'm 51, not because I'm obsessed with being 51. No, what I'm obsessed about is that most people that are 40 and older have given up in life. Mm -hmm. Life has punched them really hard in the gut, whether they divorce, whether their kids don't talk to them, whether they've lost parents, they've lost a job, life happens. Just like it's happened to me. And, and life punches you in the gut. And what I see most people is they don't bounce back. They lose their dream and they settle for, I'm gonna live to 150 freaking years old. I'm okay. looking for 200, so. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna live, and you know what? Like I tell people, listen, when they bury me, okay, and I'm in that damn casket, I'm gonna, you're gonna hear some sounds because I'm gonna be kicking in that damn casket, okay? Right. Because I'm always looking for something better to grow, whether it's personal, because one of the things, it's true, I've heard it and I've experienced it. I have greater joy in the journey of accomplishing something than once I've accomplished that. I am having greater joy in these four weeks of accomplishing my online training platform. I have done 15 webinars in four weeks. I have touched over a thousand people in four weeks being com uh, confined to four walls. Right. That to me, is a thrill to be able to do that. Yeah, so that is my superpower to always be aspiring and not settling for anything. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. That's incredible. Obviously, you've had a lot of success. Uh, you've come from a family of immigrants. You've gone to UC Berkeley. You've developed and created your own foundation, nonprofit organization. You were the CEO and president of a chamber of commerce. You had your own TV show before YouTube was even available. And then you have had the ability to create Aspire Consulting Incorporated. What is, with all that success, what would you say your definition of success really is at this point? It's a good question. Um, my 
definition uh, of success is seeing, having the desire to see a need and with all your energy provide, address the need with compassion so that you can help others. Because I am of the believer that, you know, I, we hear this saying that it's lonely at the top, meaning, right, you achieve corporate success, you know, whatever that is, maybe you're a VP, maybe you're a CEO, and you're like, it's lonely up here. I'm the only Latino, I'm the only minority, I'm the only woman or whatever. And, and no doubt, it is lonely, but here's what I say, then reach down and bring someone up. Mm, right, that's good. Awesome, yes, that's good, thank you, that's awesome. Um, this final question, I really enjoy this one. Let's say you had the opportunity to go back, back in time, back in time to meet that young Oscar, back at the age of 18 or 19 when you were first getting into UC Berkeley, when you're first stepping into that uh, classroom with a remedial English course, what would you share if you had about two minutes with that young Oscar? What three pieces of advice would you share with that young individual? So the picture that you see in my background wall, that is actually uh, Wheeler Hall at UC Berkeley. And I took this picture uh, a few months ago when uh, I was on campus. And the reason I took that picture is because my freshman year, when I walked uh, uh, first day of class, I walked into this building, my Econ 101 class. There were over 800 students in that class. And I was like, oh crap, I am not in Kansas anymore here. I, I saw the professor walk up to the podium, kind of tap it, quickly go through the syllabus and she started lecturing and I'm up in the nosebleed section. And, and I said to myself, she will never know who I am. I'm just going to be a number. I also saw 30,000 brains with two feet walking around campus. And I wasn't one of those brains. I mean, there were a lot of smart people there. And so what I would tell that Oscar freshman year is number one, believe in yourself, believe in yourself. You are worthy of being there. There's a reason why you're there because someone believes that you qualify and you're worthy. Number two, go out there and get that coaching, that help, that assistance a lot sooner. Don't try to, there, there's this thing here in the US and American society where it's independence. I'm independent, you know, you're 18, I'm independent, right? You turn 21 and you're independently can drink, you know, get drunk, whatever. No, focus on interdependence, interdependence, not independent, okay? And then the third thing is that, um, is protect or associate yourself with people that are looking to move ahead because as a parent, we're always concerned about who our kids' friends are, who they associate with, the power of association. But the power of association is a universal law that applies to anyone regardless of how old you are. So get yourself around people that are moving forward, that are challenging you in a positive way. So, you know, believe in yourself, 
Be Coachable, and The Power of Association. Thank you, Oscar. Thank you so much for sharing those pieces of advice that you would share with your younger self to succeed, to get to where you're at faster. Uh, with that, I conclude the interview. Thank you for your time, Oscar. To the audience, thank you so much for joining me and the special guest, Oscar Garcia, for another wonderful episode. My name is Lázaro Herrera from Success Innovation. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me once again in the wonderful episode of Success Innovation. I am glad that you stayed until the end and that you got to listen to Oscar Garcia's wonderful experiences as a child, how he grew up, his struggles, and his adventure through college, and how he definitely studied Chicano studies, and how that led him to be a successful individual by pursuing what he actually was passionate about. I hope that you got to learn more and that you understand a little bit better what it is to be successful and how you can achieve success yourself. Once again, you are able to reach out to Oscar Garcia and seek his advice and mentorship via LinkedIn, which the link will be provided at the bottom. Once again, this has been Lázaro Herrera for Success Innovation. Thank you so much. I encourage you to share this episode. Thank you. Bye-bye.